destruction, because he will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the, of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Like uh, Dawson said, my name is Randy. For those of you guys who don't know me, glad to can we'll actually kind of give the introductory to the letter of James with you guys this morning. Um, so Ernest Shackleton, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that name, but Ernest Shackleton's kind of a famous guy. He was, in a, he was a polar explorer in the early 1900s. So he was, he was a crazy man. Because uh, that, was, that, was, that was pretty nuts to do that kind of stuff back then. And he led three expeditions to the Antarctic. The most famous expedition was on a ship called uh, Endurance. There's a really good documentary on that. And, and what's, what's really cool is uh, to recruit people to join him on the expedition, he put out this want ad. It's a really enticing want ad to the public. And this is what it says. I don't know if you can read it on the, on the screen. But men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Yeah, sign me up. But interesting, interestingly enough, hundreds actually flocked to sign up. Unfortunately for those men, the expedition did live up to a lot of what the ad, what, what the ad did say. They all returned alive, but barely. It, it, was, it, was, it was pretty devastating. And I wouldn't doubt many wondered why they were so excited to join up uh, from reading the ad in the first place once they were in the middle of the worst of it. I wouldn't doubt it. Now, when, when I start off reading James, I, I kind of feel this way. I mean, he starts off introducing his introduction saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What an introduction. What in the world is he talking about? James here in the setup of this letter is placing disciples of Jesus. He's placing the church right in the middle of a perilous expedition filled with trials and temptations, whether they realize they signed up for that or not. James is saying that we, in this expedition, are either being tossed around to and fro by the sea of life, or we are steadfast 
anchored by something much bigger, something much greater, something more powerful than even the mighty ocean. An anchor so much more powerful that even the greatest disasters and devastations the sea might throw at us will only, at the end of the day, work to produce goodness and strength in our life to the point we are able to count it all joy when we meet trials. Faith in Jesus matures in trials only as we are anchoring ourselves into God's presence. So I believe James is going to take us through this morning. And James, he starts off in verses 2 through 4 that we just read. And he's telling us why we are to have joy when we meet trials of various kinds. He says, because in trials, he uses these two phrases, faith is tested. And this produces steadfastness. And James uses the phrase testing of faith as analogous to the refining process conducted by goldsmith or or a silversmith. This process involves the fire and, and the close attention of the smith. The smith, he puts the ore in the fire to burn out all the impurities that are on the metal. And, and, it, and it, it, uh, then he takes it out and, and he begins to shape it. And then he puts, puts it back in the fire. And all the while, he's keeping a close eye on the precious metal during this whole process. And the goal of the silversmith, or the goldsmith, is, is to fashion a precious metal until it actually is pure and it shines bright. He heats and works with the metal until he actually can see his reflection in the metal. And so God, what James is saying, God wants to refine, he wants to purify, he wants to mature our faith through trials in our life so that we will look more like him, look like, more like God in our behaviors and our attitudes, reflect who he is and what he's like in all of life. In, in the way we view or treat our enemies or those that are against us. How we handle the loss of a job or the loss of a lot of money all of a sudden. How we handle the pressure of work and daily responsibilities in life, especially when they seem to be crushing down on us or falling apart. How we handle the loss of a life of someone that is near to us. Trials are really, really hard. Trials can tend to make or break you. I don't know if you guys have heard that phrase. I've heard that a lot in the military. Or they can bring out the best or worst in people. Ernest Shackleton, what's really interesting about the story is because it was such, uh, the the whole expedition was a miserable expedition. I mean, it, it it was a failure. But what was so interesting is his men, though some wanted to com- almost committed mutiny at, at certain times and, and, and were just absolutely devastated, Ernest Shackleton was able to compose himself, keep his men from losing their minds, throwing him off board, or, or, or dying. He was able to be composed through the worst, worst situations. That's super interesting about the story. I know in my own life, uh, being in combat, I was a, I was a platoon leader, and I served three tours overseas. And the interesting, to, the interesting thing, um, as I look back at that season of my life, as I was reflecting on how trials kind of bring out the worst or best in people, I'll never forget in some situations that were really, really scary and, and very difficult and firefights that, that I was a part of, that you saw certain people that you might think rise to the occasion ended up cowering in those moments, and others that you would think wouldn't be very strong in those moments were 
unbelievable stellar leaders and fighters and saved us in a lot of ways. And so trials tend to really bring to light certain people's characters and abilities. As, as believers, our heart really gets revealed during trials. That's what James is getting after. I might think I'm a pretty patient guy, but when my kid is flipping out at 2 a.m. and Lisa, my wife, wants me to go deal with it, I, I, I can easily find out I'm not so patient as I thought I was. That trial brings that out. And that's a true one. I might uh, think I'm a pretty generous giver, but, and I don't struggle with worshiping money or think, thinking that money really controls my life until a major and sudden expense comes my way. Or I might believe God is in control and that he loves me based on Jesus alone, but when my list of things or to do in my job doesn't get met on a daily basis, I'm not executing my job the way I think I should be, I easily feel out of control, very agitated. I can also feel very unloved and unaccepted and be very unloving to others. Or I might believe God is loving, but when I lose someone who is close to me, I can doubt that, really struggle with that belief. And these moments reveal who or what we look to as our help, as, as our anchor, as our hope. So that's what's getting revealed, is who do I really go to? Who is the one I really hold fast to? Actions reveal what we really believe in the moment. Luke 6, uh, 4, uh, uh, excuse me, 43, Jesus says this, and we said in James that uh, James often is like bringing in Jesus' teaching, interweaving it throughout this, this letter. And I, I wonder if he has this in mind when Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. See, the fruit of our life, our behaviors, our attitudes, is an indicator of what we are, are really believing in at a heart level in the moment. And our faith, it gets purified during trials because the things in our heart that are keeping us from running to Jesus as our anchor are being revealed so that they can be removed. Does that make sense? Purifying our faith in trials, it looks like repenting and obeying. And what I mean by repenting, it's, it's turning from the false help, our anchors that we can tend to go to, that I tend to go to, to the true God, Jesus, who is the anchor, to be the anchor of our very souls. Testing of, of faith is intended to purify faith that already exists. It's not to determine whether you believe or not. That's not what James is talking about here. And producing steadfastness here means producing a, pre- a perseverance, uh, an endurance, as we are actually going under trials. So God wants to actually train us and prepare us so that we are more able to remain faithful to God during hardships, burdens, and pressures of trials. Now, why that's important is avoiding trials can actually stunt our growth. Right? I haven't exercised in a long time. I, my muscles are not growing, right? They're not. I'm weak. I actually tried to exercise last week, and that was it. I tried one time, could, and I, could, I was doing this walk. You guys know what I'm talking about, that walk when you're trying to go up the stairs? My muscles need to start getting built back up. God is wanting us to take us through trials to grow a heart muscle, a heart muscle that says, though this is hard, 
God, it is you I trust. And that's a hard heart muscle to grow. It really is. It's easy to say, but it's hard to grow that and walk that out. It's painful. It's very painful. He intends to make us, James says, this complete, perfect, mature maturity he wants to bring out through faith in the midst of struggles. Now here's the deal. God is without sin, and God wants to make us people who are without sin. Matthew 5, 48, I wonder if James had this in mind. Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's the deal. James knows, and we'll, get, we'll, get, we'll keep coming to this throughout the letter, that this isn't going to happen in our life. Behavior perfection, moral, moralistic perfection, it's not going to happen in our life. But James will not allow us to, in a sense, lower the bar because of that. And here's why. Because Christ has made us perfect in the eyes of God because of what he's done for us. And God intends to grow us up into who he's already made us to be. Now here's the deal. We can't do this. We aren't steadfast. We're weak. We're very weak. I'm very weak. God made that very apparent to me this weekend. I've been crushed by a lot of things. I've failed in a lot of ways as a husband, as a dad, in many, many areas. By God's grace, I mean, don't freak out. It's nothing that I need to be disqualified for my role. But, but in a lot of ways, there's a lot I needed to repent of. And I, I'll, I'll, I mean, just to really be honest with you, I ran to a coffee shop yesterday to, to sit down and talk to God about how I could ever come up here and talk about this stuff. Because all I could think about this whole week is I'm trying to apply these truths that it is through trials you, pro- you want to produce steadfastness. God, this is a trial. Give it to me right now. And failing, failing. God, I'm applying it and it's failing. How can I talk about this stuff? I'm failing. I was it, at a coffee shop wrestling with that hours ago, uh, yesterday. How could I come and talk about this? And I, I believe... That what James wants to make clear, and what he does, verses 5 through 8, is that we are weak, we can't, but God is not, and he can. He says this, starting with verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. A steadfast person who is enduring trials is someone who is regularly asking God. God is wanting to give us what we always need, what we are always in need of, wisdom. He's always wanting to give us that. God gives wisdom so that we can discern and obey his will. We need God's perspective on our situations, especially during struggles. We need his power. We need his strength. We need his guidance. We need him. We need him. And it begins with asking. And I think, that's re- I think that trips us up. Can it really be that simple, asking? I tell my kids to ask me for help all the time. All the time. Because Lu- like Lucy, my middle child, um, gets so frustrated. She can just flip out like that when, um, for instance, when she tries to get up on her little, uh, on her chair to, right before dinner. To try to get up, and she always gets stuck, and she can't get up. And what she does is, like, she'll throw a temper tantrum. She doesn't ask Dad for help. I'm like, Lucy, just ask ask me for help. Or, like, her little brother is much smaller than her. He'll he'll hit her, and she knows she's not supposed to hit him back, though she could totally destroy him in a second. 
she's not supposed to do it. So she gets frustrated, just starts throwing a temper tantrum and starts flipping out. I'm like, Lucy, all you got to do is come ask daddy for help. I'm going to take care of the situation. Sometimes it's like right there. I'm like standing there. I'm like, Lucy, just ask daddy. I'm right here. She's like flipping out, like going crazy. I'm like, wow, this is insane. She is totally not wanting my help. I told her I'd help her. What's really funny is sometimes when I'm laying down and I'm selfishly not wanting to help her out, she'll come and actually apply that and say, Dad, can you help me out? Like, oh, no, I can't do that. And, and, I, and, and I wonder, I, I wonder if sometimes we apply that to God. We, we, put our, we put our mass and our weakness onto God, but he never tires in fact, he says, the way this works out, you want this enduring trial of faith? It is through asking and asking and asking and asking. That's how this works. Like, I, I don't have any cooler way to say it. It's asking. That's what it is. That's what, that's what James is saying here. He's saying, ask. Now, I guess the question we have is, but we, we are to ask with faith, not doubting. What does that mean? Asking in faith is not the absence of doubt. We all will struggle and wrestle with doubts. Why? Because we are weak. We live in a broken, fallen world. We are broken and needy. We have Christ. We have victory in Christ, but we are weak. We struggle with sin and brokenness. We're going to struggle with doubt. The doubting James is referring to is a deep-seated one where there is a division within the believer. This is where he talks about being double-minded. There's a division within the believer that brings about an inconsistent attitude and thoughts towards God. Where it's inconsistent. It's, it's this habitual thoughts, attitudes towards God that are divided. A double-minded person is someone who is not seeking and asking God for his wisdom in order to discern and obey his will in a consistent manner. A double-minded person is consistently going back and forth from worldly wisdom to God's wisdom. And so here's the deal. If we lack spiritual integrity, if you will, this constantly asking God at a consistent level where it's, where it's a pattern in our life where we're lacking spiritual integrity, we should not ex- really, what James is saying, expect to receive wisdom from God. And I think what James is trying to say is because we're not listening to him. We're really not listening to him. And he, here's a question. If you aren't hearing from God, this is something I've applied to myself. I, I did it yesterday, actually. Um, and you feel confused in your life. A good question to ask God is this. Father, is there any place in my life I'm not wanting to obey you? Is there, anything, is there any place in my life right now I am not wanting to obey you? So it's a bit different. It's a bit of a humble posture. Because sometimes we can get very demanding and say, God, why isn't it this way? What's wrong? I'm so frustrated. Why is this not happening yet? If you're in that place, I am there at times a lot. We get to go before, humble ourselves before the sovereign God, creator of heaven and earth, by his grace, and ask him, is there a place in my life I'm not wanting to obey you right now. And James, what, he, what, he, what he's calling for is consistency and integrity of one's faith that is, that is filled with prayer and asking God. You see, the opposite of being double-minded is, is a single-hearted commitment to God. 
And Jesus, for instance, describes it like this in the Gospels when he quotes Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Steadfastness, endurance, perseverance in the midst of the stormy seas happens through consistent, dependent prayer because it leads to greater intimacy with God. You see, God's just not, he doesn't want a bunch of rule followers. If you hear that when we're going through James, we're missing James. See, he's saying, count trials, joy. Why? Because faith in Jesus matures in trials only as we are anchoring ourselves in God's presence. God uses trials to bring us closer to him. That's what James is getting at. That's why we count trials as all joy. God's presence in Jesus is the anchor we continually hold fast to in the midst of trials. God uses trials to produce a more of an intimate relationship with Jesus, with God, with the Father, with, with the Spirit. And Jesus accomplished for us by his death and resurrection. And it's not just the beginning. See, Jesus didn't just die so we can have an intimate relationship between us and God. And then we leave that and we, and we put other things more important than God. Trials are meant to actually deepen the relationship so we continue to grow. See, our faith in Jesus is the beginning of our relationship with God. God wants us every day to grow in a deep awareness of his presence, deep awareness of his communication to us about his love for us. And we get to express it back through asking and praising and thanking. That is a wonderful life. Trials are used to actually enhance and bring us more into a deeper relationship with God. Because here's the deal. God doesn't want the gospel as something merely to be theorized or articulated. God wants us to hear the gospel from his own voice to our hearts. God wants to speak it to us because it comes through him. Us asking him, him speaking it to it, and the spirit changing us, giving us new desires. God wants us to go to him as our steadfast anchor and he wants to anchor us in him every day, all day. But as we know, as we know, and as I've already been saying, this is really, really hard. Trials are real, and they mess us up more than we realize at times. In the next passage, verses 9 through 11, it might seem James is actually going a totally opposite direction, and he kind of does a little bit. Um, He starts talking about the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, we, we pass away. And we're going to touch more on that later on in the series, because he hits the rich and poor um, a couple other times. But he is bringing in um, not just a new thought. I, I believe underneath what James is saying here is he's continuing the conversation by perhaps giving us the greatest threat that tends to knock us off from re- remaining anchored in Jesus, and that's money. And I believe money is, is, is one of the greatest tests. Money is a, a powerful way to uproot us, disconnect us from spiritual identity that God gives us in Jesus. Let, let's just do this real quick. It's dialogue time. If you're poor, not you here, poor person, by the world standard, how might a poor person view themselves in light of the world standard? Go ahead, just, just share it right where you're seated. What's that? What's that? 
Not good enough. Thanks. What else? What's that? Isolated. Okay. Depend. Okay. Dependent. Yeah. What else? What's that? Failure. And I heard one other one. I I, I can't. You you go, Mark. Did you? Out of control. Okay. No voice. Yeah. So lack value. Insignificant. So. A rich person by the world standards, how would they view themselves? What's that? You, yeah, you're the leader. What else? Important. What else? Proud, significant, valued, right? So, we, so yeah, powerful. We can all, I mean, it's just, it's easy for us to say this. We're not even like, it's just, we, we know how the world standards can tend to inform how we might view ourselves based on having money or not having much money. And it could be very easy to be tossed to and fro considering how pervasive this worldly wisdom is in our culture. We're being deceived if we don't realize that. It can easily lead us to let our wants, for instance, to regularly be misunderstood for needs. It can bring us into debt. Tons of debt and keep us into debt. It can keep us from being open and honest with one another about our finances, our need for help. Or our ability to speak into each other's finances. And the key, James is saying, is asking. He wants us to work through the heart issue that leads us to obey God. Our significance, it doesn't come from our material possessions. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the identity he gives us. If you're poor, guess what? In Christ, you're exalted. You're very significant. If you're rich, don't forget, you worship a man who is despised and rejected by many. Did you get what I'm saying here? Our identity is rooted and found in Jesus. Do not be tossed to and fro by the world. It's very easy. Do not be deceived, brothers. Look to Christ. Ask God for wisdom through Christ. Get your identity from Christ. And how many opportunities we have dealing with money and significance in the world do we have to enter in and endure a trial that draws us closer to the presence of Jesus. A ton. I believe money is, a, is so pervasive in our culture. We get stuck in it time and time again. It's an opportunity for intimacy with our Creator. James moves on to uh, verse 12, and he says that enduring trials, it actually does bring about a reward, which really makes the whole material gain not count as much. Our, what, what I mean there, let me just say, money's a good thing. Making money is a great thing. You can steward it well for God's kingdom. But when you compare it to what we get in light of Jesus and who Jesus is, it, it, it doesn't compare. And that's when we actually can use money in the way God wants us to. And what he says in verse 12 is, enduring trials, it brings about a reward. You receive the crown. And the image that James has in mind is of a disciplined athlete being crowned with a wreath at the end of a race. And the reward received is life. You see, God is the source of life. And we attain life not by getting through trials. Like, this is really important. We don't get life just by getting through trials or getting around trials. We gain life through Jesus. That's how life comes about. Jesus brings life in and of himself, us coming to him, us receiving him. And this ought to be an encouragement to us in the midst of struggles. 
because this world isn't it. This was a huge encouragement to me yesterday, just sitting there thinking about my failures and knowing one day it's all going to be gone. And I'll get to be completely fully with Jesus, with full perfection there. No sin hindering. That's an encouragement. In the midst of struggles, we can be reminded of of what's to come. Again and again and again. And here's the deal. Not like Ernest Shackleton's want ad ended with, you might end with honor and success. The good news of Jesus is we will, in Christ, be crowned with life. We are successful now. Yesterday, in the worst situation I was in, I was crowned. I have the crown of life awaiting me. We don't ruin it. We don't mess it up. It's hidden in Christ. We, it's Christ is our ankle. It's not our abilities to keep the reward. God has it waiting for us. That's hope. Is that good news to you? Is that good news to you? That one day you'll be crowned with life. You will be in the full presence of Jesus who is life fully. Is that good news to you? Does that bring you hope? And I think it can actually be easy for us to, to, to not believe that. That God's goal for us when we are facing trials. And I think that's why James gets into 13 and 15, to 15. He gives this warning. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Every trial, every trial comes with it a temptation to sin. Every trial comes with it a temptation to sin. And as believers, it can be very easy to blame God in the midst of our trials. Very easy to blame God in the midst of our trials. Someone we love dies, we can doubt God's love. You lose your job, you can doubt God's provision. Or constant habitual mess-ups in your life. It can be very easy to look at God and be very frustrated with him, saying, God, how long is this going to take? Or God, you just got to fix this. Or God, well, I'm just waiting on you. You're going to have to stop this. I don't know what else to do. It's, you know, kind of like your fault. Because I'm still struggling with it. I don't want to, but I'm, I still am. There's, just, there's so many ways. We can, and we can even hide behind our theology. It can get so weird. But James says that the desire for sin is, is what brings about sin. And you see, behind every action, there is a desire driving the action. There's, there, there's a root that leads us to fruit, like actions and behaviors. And that is the beginning of sin. It's the root of our sin. It's the mot- what's motivating us, driving us to certain actions. And God does not have a desire to sin himself, is what James says. Therefore, he cannot desire for sin to be brought about in us. We, on the other hand, have desires to sin that comes from our own sinful nature, not from God. We can read about that in Genesis. It was man's responsibility that brought sin into the world, not God's. Now, important to note, experiencing temptation is not sin. Temptation will be a part of our experience and journey. We see in Hebrews uh, 2.18 that Jesus was tempted. When our desire, here's the deal, but when our desire for it is greater than a desire for Jesus, then temptation becomes sin. And it can even be good things. And a lot of times it is good things. We've been talking about good things, some of them, like money. That's a good thing. 
but we make it more important than Jesus or better than Jesus, it becomes sin. See, sin is presented by James as luring, enticing, pleasurable, attractive, advantageous. It's almost, it's like opportunistic in a way. And I think this is important to say because sometimes we can look at sin as like, I don't know, that it isn't. It doesn't lure us in. It's not attractive. And I think this is why many of us are, when we're in sin, we can think of a thousand different ways it's okay to hide, that we make excuses or we hide. Because deep down, there's a lot of times when we're engaging in sin, we want to. We want it. We want to taste and see. This is why God wants to take us through the refiner's fire. We try to find life and comfort through the avoidance of pain and awkwardness, embarrassment, hardships. And it feels like it's leading to life because it might, it might feel good in the moment, but it actually is leading to death. See, we're really confused. We're so tossed to and fro at times. We think we're heading towards life, but we're actually heading towards death. It's because it's moving us away from the giver of life, the source of life. Remember when I said you, we think sometimes avoiding trials or just maybe even trying to get through it and gut through it is going to lead to life. That's, that's not what leads to life. Life is found in Jesus alone. And to find it in Jesus, it's to actually find death to self. And he leads us, the Spirit wants to lead us to these death to self moments that feel like at times we're doing the wrong. It, it just, it feels crazy. It, the pain is hard and, and we feel like we're actually making a decision that maybe might not even be good for us. Or it's, that's why it can be so easy to convince ourselves away from it. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Through death, you find life. Through death, you find life. Through death, we grow, we mature, we grow more intimate with Jesus. When trials hit, we either blame God and are tossed to and fro, or we entrust ourselves to him and allow him to produce a faith that endures by his very presence. James concludes with verses 16 and 18 in the intro of his letter, making it very clear why God through Jesus is who to be our anchor and whom we trust again and again and again. James says he's the giver of good gifts. And the good news about the giver of good gifts is his desire is to give, bless, and love us is steadfast. There's no variation. It doesn't change. It's there. It's consistent. See, God is steadfast in his commitments and his promises. We read that through the whole Bible. What he says happens. What he commits to, he stays committed to. And the good news is he's committed to giving good gifts. And then James concludes with verse 18. James, then he gives us an example, the, the best example of how God has given us the best and perfect gift that is the basis of our entrusting ourselves to God in the midst of trials. Because here's the deal, right? When you're in the midst of really, really bad trials, at the end of the day, there's mystery involved. Why? There, there's so many questions that can come up, specific questions. Why this? Why that? And you know, at the end of the day, a lot of those can't be answered. They can't be answered. God and his infinite knowledge is way beyond us. His sovereignty, he, he, he's the God of the ocean. He's the God of like 
the, the twos and fro's and the storms and the, the mess ups and, and, then, and then the peaceful waters. He's just God over all of it and how it all works. We just at the end of the day get on our knees and say, God, I have no clue, but I worship you. But the question is, is how, you know, we can say that, but when you lose something, when, when you're hurting, how do you stay there? Right? That's what I ask. Are we asking? How do we stay in that place? And James ends there. He ends in the introduction with it. Here's what he says. Of his own will, of his own choice, God's own choice, he brought us forth by the word of truth, which I believe he's referring to the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, creation, uh, of his creatures. God freely chose to extend his grace through the gospel to people like you and me, as to bring about a foretaste, a first fruits of God's redemptive plan that will eventually encompass all creation where there will be no stormy seas. And God's plan is, it's one of rescuing. It's not destroying. He's not out to get us. He's out to save us. Though we might not know all the specific questions, we know that God and Jesus is not against us, but he's for us. That this is the bedrock of being steadfast and anchored in the midst of trials. We keep coming to God in prayer to be anchored because of the gospel. And here's why this is important. In the times it feels unfair and hopeless, enduring trials, and prayer can even seem pointless. It can, it can honestly seem pointless. You guys ever say, oh, you know, I, I know Randy and others tell me, you know, I got to do the prayer thing. The Bible tells me to do the prayer thing, but I don't even feel like it. What point is there? The point is we get to hold fast to Jesus. God's presence in Jesus is the anchor we hold fast to in the midst of trials. Hebrews 6.19 has been comforting me all day yesterday and this morning. Hebrews 16.19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Anchor of the soul. Is your soul anchored this morning? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest. Getting behind the curtain is another way of saying getting into the the presence of God and being accepted and loved because Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Jesus endured the greatest trial ever. He who was sinless, and had a perfect relationship with the Father, took on our sin, and was separated from the Father. There's no trial greater than what Jesus had suffered. And guess what, family? He has done it for us on our behalf, so that we might get to run to him and be in the very presence of God that Jesus has always had, and he gave up so that we can enjoy it. Jesus is the anchor of our soul in the most devastating trials. And we don't deserve that. We don't deserve to have that refuge constantly available to us. And then on top of that, us rejecting it, but him saying, it's still here. It's still here. See, here's the deal. God is not to be blamed for causing you to sin, causing us to sin. But what's so amazing and scandalous about the gospel is that the cross the responsibility of our sin, we get to actually put it on Jesus, and Jesus takes the blame at the end of the day of our sin. That's what anchors our soul. In Jesus, God says, 
give me the blame, the responsibility, and put it on me. And he takes care of our greatest debt because our greatest debt is being reconciled to God. And we, we can't do that. We can't do it. Jesus paid the debt perfectly. We now in Christ are free to run to our dad, to run to God again and again and again and be anchored again and again and again. And hold fast to Christ in trials. So what? He produces endurance. And we get to grow deeper in intimacy with God. So here's what we get to do. We get to keep our focus on Jesus. God's presence in Jesus is the anchor we get to hold fast to in the midst of trials. So where are you at this morning? That's the question. Where are you at? Is your soul anchored in Christ? The Spirit wants to anchor you in Jesus. Maybe some of you are here and you are significantly being tossed to and fro and the Spirit wants to recenter you, re-anchor you in Christ. Maybe some of you are here and you don't even want maybe even to talk to God right now. There's hurt, there's pain. There's a lot of doubt. And the good news for you is even in our asking, I am so convinced of this, our asking comes through God's pursuit of us in Jesus. And I believe the Spirit just wants to come into you and bring you to Jesus. Because he wants to show you that it, even, it isn't even through your mustering up that you've got to do something, like even asking, but it's through the power of Jesus who comes and though is perfect, takes your sin and makes you righteous. And the way he loves to work that out is even taking us, even in our desperate situation where we want to reject God and shows us and leads us to Jesus. And so I believe Spirit wants to lead you to worship Jesus even when you don't feel like it right now. So what I, what I want us to do is we're going to sit and just be quiet before the Lord, and I want to ask him to minister to you wherever you're at. And Brittany, I would like to you, you uh, if you can come up here and get ready to lead us. So Father, we, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the Spirit that's active and alive right now, moving. Holy Spirit, I pray you come and minister and anchor us right now in Christ. We all need it. I need it right now. So we just humble ourselves and submit ourselves to you. We just want to bear our hearts before you right now. Lead us, Holy Spirit. Come and minister to us. Pray in Jesus' name.